Hey guys, this is And The Writer Is, and I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of writers and artists over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life and the industry, politics, composition, whatever. If you ask me, songwriters are some of the most worldly and intelligent people I've ever come across. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. Now, I'm co-producing this with my friend Joe London, who was nominated for a Grammy earlier this year for Best Country Song. He makes us sound like angels. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, go to Spotify and look up our playlist, And The Writer Is, or go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Also, I was a guest this week on our friend's podcast, Switched On Pop. They dissect songs from a compositional musicology standpoint. Uh, This week we did Shape of You for Ed Sheeran, so that was a fun time. Check that out on iTunes. And now to And The Writer Is. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, this week's guest is Mike Karen. Mike Karen is one of the most influential people in the music business. There are execs across the industry who were once Mike's assistants. And there are writers who are at the very top, whose first session came because of Mike Karen. There are artists who are playing Super Bowls and, and arenas who broke because of Mike Karen. And I guarantee I'm not the only writer in the music business that has a little Mike Karen sitting on his shoulders in writing sessions. And that's because he's the Billy Bean from Moneyball for songwriting. That's what he does. He analyzes songwriting and production in such detail that he consistently consistently changes the game. As long as I've been in the music business, Mike Karen has had songs somewhere on the radio. But he didn't start in a vacuum. Mike is a hit writer and a hit producer. So you don't become the head of Warner A&R worldwide if you don't know a thing or two about songwriting. So without further ado, here is this week's episode of And The Writer Is. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Our guest today is one of the most powerful people in the music business. He's been listed in Billboard 40 Under 40. He's president of Worldwide A&R for Warner Music Group Labels and runs one of the strongest independent publishing management companies in the world. Meanwhile, he's produced hit records and opened the door for dozens of aspiring writers, including myself. From Los Angeles, California, this man is a master of the music industry. And the writer is... The industry's entrepreneur, Mike Karen. Thank you. That was a that was a nice setup. I'll well, take you it. know, I figure I should start with something nice. I won't rip you to shit. I promise. I like you. First of all, we've done like we've done a bunch of these, and I kind of think you're like the uh, 
You're like the Kevin Bacon of the music industry. Okay. Like everybody has a major connection to you. I don't know if you realize. Do you realize that you how much you've impacted the beginning of writers' careers? And I don't know. I I do. I I enjoy being around writers and artists at the beginning of their career. I mean, it's the energy and excitement and passion everything is new and the 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 first you know the first placement the first hit the first award the first i mean it's just like you just you know you feel the energy you see it in people's eyes and being around the superstars on the sixth album that are upset because they're you know uh they, 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 you know, casting blame for, you know, something for for not being at the pinnacle at that particular moment when they so unaware of, you know, even how lucky they are to to to, to remain in the business is just is deflating, you know. Sure. So, um, but it all really comes from, you know, having no relationships when I went into business, no right. no one, no no family friends, no um, inside track with anyone of. Of, of any stature and uh, figuring that, you know, the only access I would have is to the, you know, to the, to the, to the artists and the writers and the producers that no one else is talking to. Yeah. Um, and now I feel that was like a blessing because it. Yeah. I mean, I always say, I think your forte from my perspective has always been that you have never put a name before a hook. Like mm. you don't, you don't care who, who gives you the hook. You'll mm. just take it if yeah. it's a hit. But that's a that's a um, that's a really confident way to look at the music industry because I mean we come across all kinds of people who have bravado, think they know what a hit is, but you're picking out bands from the middle of nowhere. I mean, in in my case, I got a phone call from Alex, your old assistant, who's now one of your hit producers, <laughs> you know, who then calls my manager of my band at the time and says, there's some song called Encore that mm. you liked that somebody sent you for something, whatever it was, you guys found a way to track me down to say, hey, why don't you come in to sessions? And you didn't even yeah. do really a meeting. You were like, hey, come in and let's write with... I think uh, the first one was like Asher Roth and maybe it was, you know, or it was like Akon or it was Flowrider or CeeLo. You never cared that I had zero credits. I mean, does that affect your, it it has to affect some confidence sometimes when you're thinking, man, I I don't know, I like this song, but this person has no track record, doesn't it or no? Uh, I mean... Well, you you said a few things. First, there's a a quote that um, has been attributed to a lot of different people that I say all the time. Someone even made me a coffee mug on my desk with the quote on it, which is, you know, talking about music is like dancing to architecture. Right. So I try to do as few meetings as possible. Some try to avoid people taking it personally but i really i really love listening to music that's the part the you know the the best parts of this business is listening to great music is being around creative people with great energy watching things you know coalesce and 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 manifest and, and and become something from nothing um and so um yeah i guess i'm i mean i'm confident in my um a uh, taste or my uh, ability to recognize melodies or lyrics, cleverness, understanding, you know, like connection with sort of uh, human nature and psychology and all these things. I, I, I sort of, uh, I, I try to, um, um, I try to describe it and figure out what it is. You know, I've been like 
reading about uh, uh, Maslow, Maslow and his like hierarchy of needs and how that relates to song concepts and how what, does what that connects. relate to song concepts? Well, I mean, everything's loose because there's no rules in the music business. That's great. You know, one of the, the best things about the business is that, you know, you can find an artist that, you know, the next great artist any day. Every day yeah. you wake up, I'd like check my email. There's all these songs and ideas that are in there that came overnight from Europe or from the late night studio sessions and any day can be like Christmas day and you hear something, you get something incredible that's going to make you a fortune or change your life. Um, and then the same thing, every time you walk into a studio session, some, some, some magic could happen. Um, but, um, as far as the hierarchy of needs, you know, if you're thinking theoretically how, um, what a hit is, a hit is something that usually emotionally connects with the most amount of people, Right. Right. So I always use the example of like the I smoke cigarettes as something marginal. You know, I don't think there's going to be a significant amount of people singing along to a song called I smoke cigarettes that don't smoke. There may be a few like, you know, wannabes that think that's cool. But even people who smoke cigarettes may not want to, you know, particularly broadcast that message out there. Um, So then if you have a, you know, a song, I am a woman, right? Right. Probably at best you're, you know, 52% of the population can sing along. So you're starting to think about what, um, what does everyone agree with? And then there's, so hierarchy of needs is first you need air, you know, water. And, you know, and then once you uh, uh, food. Once you've, you know, gotten that that desire, that need down, yeah. you then seek protection, shelter. And then the next level of the need is, uh, I think, something that's like, um, um, uh, you know, relationships, and uh, and you get up to like, you know, to self improvement and all these things. So yeah. at the core of it, we all have the same needs and we all once we've achieved those needs we move you know our, our we get to the next tier of the so you uh, thinking that songs conceptually can be about these needs to to touch more people that 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 yeah. that's the correlation uh, yeah i mean i think that um I think songs in general that really affect people express an emotion that they that help them express an emotion that right. they have to say. Even either that they know how to say I love you, but they want a new way to say it right. because just saying I love you over and over and over has right. a you know maybe a diminishing impact. So right. saying it in a different way or yeah. to a melody or something is valuable. So um, so you're helping people express, and so if you express something that only a limited amount of the population agree right. with, it has it has less chance to be as broad a hit so if you're you know um, if you're we had that you mentioned Asher Roth I love college right. so that's an, a statement that people either agree or disagree with right. the song has a ceiling to connect sure. with you know people who agree with that statement or or think or want to express that statement did you know that uh, when you were involved in that song I mean how did you know that at that time yeah. what, at yeah. what point did you realize oh yeah this song has a ceiling when you were writing, yeah. we're like, oh, there's a smash. We love this song. Or was I, it sort of a yeah. thing where you're I like, knew it at a ceiling, but I also think in like American culture, people love, they cherish their high, their high school and college memories. A lot of yeah. cultures, that's like, that's lame. But right. but we have, you know, pop successful movies. That, so you know, you've now shrunken into a domestic few people who've gone through college and enjoy it. What, where it's like a cherished, high, like special memory in sure. your life. A lot of people, you know, they're, 
greater memories are right. you know not connected to school. It's, yeah. It is an American culture thing. Right. We do celebrate university in a different right. way than international. But yeah, so I thought it, it could connect with the people who aspire to, to you know look forward to going to college and having that fun in college, or 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 remember have the fond memories of college. But that's and that's a significant amount of population. That's not everybody. Some didn't go to college and never wanted to, or sure. don't think it's cool. But um, going to, going to that to every song is how how many people will agree to this, and then how many people want to express this emotion, and is this presented in a way that they um, will express either because. Um, they feel that way or they want to be ironic or they want to be funny or they want to flirt. Like in the room with yeah. writers, I'm always asking when the lyric is, you know, I see you in the stars. I ask, like, turn to someone in the room, look yeah, in their eyes never, yeah. and try to get these words out of your mouth. You can. And if you can, yeah. like, you know, sure. if it's not it conversational. conversational. Yeah, right. yeah. But it's weird because, you know, when you're saying that uh, in a way that there are no rules and uh, to music and to, to mm-hmm. writing, but yet I think of... When I think of the APG experience for somebody who's learning how to be a writer, and I know how many people you've had come mm-hmm. through this building, you know, first I was thinking it's like the Brill building, but it is more like a, a school. I mm-hmm. feel like it's a school because on some level you you literally have sort of these are parameters mm-hmm. that you should at least be aware of. Even though there are no rules, there here are some rules or here are some things to avoid. <laughs> Well, you know? I, I, I've I've heard both the Brill Building and the school, and I've realized we're more like a, um, you know, coaches on a team. You know, uh-huh. you're not. Uh, you have a, a time with a, a great coach. He gives you some strategy. He gives you some drills. He gives you some things to take into consideration. Yeah. But when you're on, you know, you're really on the court. You're 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 going to use a little bit of what you've learned. You're going to take those things into consideration. But you're going to be your right. own player. You know, well, instinct as a writer is so much a part of it, and that's not something you can yeah. teach very well. Yeah, you know, instinct is something you can. You can refine, but on some level, it's still your instinct. Uh, absolutely, and I look at it more like uh, we we have no rules. We offer like sort of you know sort of a buffet of <laughs> you know of tools, of resor- yeah. resources. Sure. Really, you know, I mean, just, every writer, all those guys have a little Mike Karen on their shoulder somewhere. Like I, I know every uh, one of those guys at some point has been in a session where they've been like, where they've probably even vocalized, yeah, but you know. I remember that conversation with Mike, and he said, "Well, what if you if you ask a question, then the person listening is gonna wanna, you know, is gonna wanna yeah. answer it. If you're gonna all these all these tricks that I still think of, even though I've been in it for a while now, you know, some yeah. of these things are real like Mike Karenisms. Well, you know? I, I, I always say, you know, the the." Uh that we are in this computer era. You can save things. You can you can try things two or three different ways. You can uh, bounce them down and then listen to them next sure. morning and see what feels good. Or you, you don't have to bring around. the whole band out you to re-record the song anymore. Well, well you're right. not. You know, you're not like this. Isn't a precious uh, canvas or a stone where you're going to chisel it and it's 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 there permanently. You can have versions. You can even let the public enjoy multiple versions of something and and see what res- resonates with them. But yeah. I I, I do have those theories that I that I share, and I say, you know, you know, there is like uh, I finally found the the word for it, um, and now I'm of course gonna um, uh, forget it, but uh, uh, I think it was called a uh, uh, interjection, where you um, you know where you know a chorus. If you want people to pay attention to a chorus yeah. and it to be a summary and it to be a statement and it for it to suck people in, then you then you want to um, get their attention. 
Sure. So you know, it's it, there the is haze. there is no there is a human nature. How yeah. do you stop someone and how do you get them to pay attention? If right. you drop something and you want them to notice, you say "oops" and everyone turns around to right. see what happened. Right. You know, if if you're sure. if you're on the street and you're trying to get a girl's number, trying to stop them, and hey. especially if you're a construction yeah, worker, you know, you're like, right. you know, you're you're gonna you're gonna use a, one of several, you know. Sort of familiar ways to to catch someone's attention, you know. So. But do you, okay, so you know when you were saying the first thing you said was that your your parents weren't in the industry, you had yeah. no one who really helped you out in any of this. It was that you had to sort of grind your way into it. Who taught you this stuff? I mean, mm. as, who are the people who really pulled you from being a kid? Who I know you were doing like DJ stuff and obviously yeah. some production stuff. So. How did you go from being, I'm a producer at home, because mm-hmm. at one point you were, and you were that obscure yeah. guy, this can't totally be exactly how you imagined your career to turn out? No. Or is it? No. I, I mean, it's just a thousand trial and errors. You know, when I was in high school, I didn't, I didn't really understand. I didn't know about record companies. I was, de- you know, DJing, and I, um, you know, started a little radio show in order to be able to have an excuse. To, I, I found out that labels give free music to to. DJs on the radio. So I figured out a way to become a DJ to call labels to get the free music. And then I um, saw like a four track and how that could, you know, be an advantage for for sort of making mixtapes. And then bought an eight track and started recording my neighbors and friends of friends. And, you know, by the time, you know, halfway through high school, I had, you know, was recording Black Eyed Peas songs. But I mean, who knew they weren't, they were just some kids from, from from Pally, and then just trial and error, trial and error. You still keep but, in touch with them? I mean, obviously, yeah. there's some career-wise, but do you guys keep in touch as friends? Sort of yeah. like, this is crazy, what's going on with our lives? I, I don't know if we have, like, really had that conversation with Will, but, but we, we're in regular contact, and we, sure. laugh, we laugh about things from people. We're still friends with a lot of people from 20 years ago, oh, from, yeah, back, sure. from back then, and, you know, um, it's uh, such a small world. He had the, uh, the faux Rari. Which was a was like a yellow. I forgot what it was. It was like a. It's just this yellow, like twenty-year-old sports car right. that like was all beat up. That nice. he had like a little kit on, and yeah. it was a fake. In his mind, is <laughs> the fake that. Ferrari. The Ferrari. Yeah. Um, but um, in my Rari. Uh, <laughs> it's like it should be. They should do a remix of that. <laughs> it was, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, high but yeah, but that, yeah. So high school, so I started yeah. doing marketing. I didn't know there was an an A and R department that that signed and developed acts. Uh, I I brought them some acts because I felt like some of the acts that we were marketing weren't um, as good as other artists that were out there that were available. I didn't know that that was something you just you know you, you would make a full time job. And then when we were making records, I just didn't understand things. I didn't understand right. why you had to spend fifteen hundred dollars. I understand I had a little studio from my high school in my right. house in my sure. dorm room or apartment right. and I didn't understand why we always went to some big fancy recording studio right. where I felt like so intimidated and you know the clock was ticking and it was yeah. burning $200 an hour and you know because there's a lot of sessions that you spend 12-14 hours on and at the end of the session you're in your car riding home knowing that it was a complete waste of time yeah. and that you have nothing to show for it yeah. and you know instead of feeling miserable I feel like you know no big deal um, we're in a lower pressure situation. Right. So everything was sort of an evolution of why isn't the business work this way? And like, you know, the publishing company was a manifestation of um, publishers used to call me and say, 
hey, what record are you working on? Like, you know, who are you using? Who are the writers? Who are the producers? And I'd be like, oh, I found this kid at the Verizon store, and he's he's really talented. He's doing right. half this album. And um, they'd say, can you introduce me to him? I'd introduce him, and then that person would call me, like, a few months later, saying, hey, thank you for the introducing. That guy wrote me a huge check, right? right? And then, like, six months after that or a year after that, he'd call me. The same person would call back and say, could you manage me? And I'd say, why? And he'd say, well, I got that big check from the publisher. I appreciate that, but I need someone to do stuff for me. How old are you at this point? When 20, is this? 20, 20, 23, 24, 25. And people are say, hey, you know... You're helping me make money, and you're you never went to college then, I assume. Right? I went to a I I was did a year and a half at NYU from like seven to ten in the morning and seven to ten at night, and I worked at length during the day. So what, you um, were in New York during during the beginning of this, or did you come straight yeah. to LA after that year and a half? So I I was in high school in LA, worked for a couple labels, got um, an offer to work for Atlantic in marketing, right. but I had had to move for New York. Uh-huh. I had just gotten into NYU, right. so I tried to do both at the same time. Right. Um, and I started a little 12-inch hip-hop label at that time right. I was doing as well. And then uh, about a year and a half into that, I sort of burnt out. I had just signed Twista. I got offered a job to... I had produced a song Your for own the... company. Two. I signed Twista to Atlantic. Okay. I was, But I was a marketing person. Right. But I brought him in and we, sure. we signed him. And then I had produced a record for the far side and I had a, a, a job offer to come back to yes. L.A. And uh, thanks. And, um, and so I turn in like a letter of resignation to Atlantic and they said, oh, if you want to do A&R and move back to L.A., there's actually a job available there to do that and you don't have to leave the company. Who was your boss so, at that point? That was Craig Kalman, who was my okay. boss for 17 years, That's believe it or not. But um, and, uh, and then I went back and did L.A. full time and sort of, you know, Craig was in New York, Atlantic was in New York. Right. I was kind of out here, you know, had to figure it out right. um, with these, you know, rappers I was signing at the time and, and trying then, to when, make records. Is that, is that the same? I mean, I guess a lot of them were signed, Trey Songz, T.I., Flo Rida, and uh, Wiz Khalifa, mm-hmm. Twista. I mean, all these guys are sort of the same era when you're starting to sign them or like, what? Yeah, I don't know, like the- how you go from... You know, a white kid from <laughs> from L.A. and you yeah. have the most urban roster of well, I anybody would say it was, in music um, for a while, you know? It's crazy. Yeah. Well, when I when I got into DJ, it was that time of Tribe Called Quest and, and right. Leaders of a New School and a really exciting hip-hop time. And then when I was doing marketing, um, I was sort of noticing these new genres. I went on the road with some acts through the South. I was at the era of Master P, and I saw... I went to Atlanta, Louisville, Knoxville, Nashville, Memphis. I saw through Ohio, saw what was happening with rap at the time. And um, and then there was, you know, and what I was figured out with Axe was that there's all these A&Rs in the office. They'd all go to the Viper room like right. every night and they sure. would always go to the Rainbow room yeah. and they were like, you know, they would have a, 200 different ways to, to describe like a woman's body. Like right. it was just they were the same guys. They yeah. all were like all black and and but they they knew everybody in L.A. and New York. Yeah. There was like a social club. And I wasn't in that social club. And I it came to my I realized you know what, I'm just going to ignore L.A. and New York. 
If there's yeah. a show, someone invites me yeah. to showcase, I'm not going. Right. I'm just going to focus on the rest of the country. Right. And so Twista was Chicago, Trick Daddy and Trina were Miami at that point. There were no, no uh, there hadn't been a successful rapper since uh, Luke, uh, since uh, Two Live Crew in Miami. Wow. So then people didn't didn't look at Miami as a place for rap. But were you flying so, in those cities, or people are sending you records? You know, I was finding them. Um, I was calling record stores and asking what local records were selling. I was talking to DJs. I was talking to the street team and the marketing contacts, right. asking people what was happening in the market. I'd go to the market yeah. as soon as I heard. But that was so that area was Trick Daddy and Trina. It was uh, Nappy Roots from Kentucky. It was Twista. It was some point it became Trey Songs and T.I. and Young Dro. And uh, and that was the first 10 years. And then in that time, there was all those publishing um, things, you know, uh, people, producers, writers, I kind of discovered and got publishing deals. And then at one point I was turning down all the management because I was like, I'm an A&R person. Right. I'm not a manager. I'm not a super, you know, massager people person. I'm like, a, you know, I'm, no. a, I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm, you know, a, a guy who. Why well, is that? I mean, why? yeah, I mean, you've traveled around the country. You've met all kinds of different people. Yeah. And why don't you think of yourself as a people person? Well, I think there's sort of like um, uh, what's what's diametrically op what's the word uh, diametrically opposed. So yeah, so somebody who likes to listen to a lot of music and huh. and shut themselves in the studio and experiment is not the person who's going to be the social person. Right. So you kind of have to know when you meet someone who's incredible social dynamic, they're out every night right. that they're also probably not going to you know get yeah, back to you yeah. and give you comments on your music and constructive criticism and insights and know every songwriter's you know talents and be able to um pair you with your yin to your yang it's one of those so, things that i tell i tell writers like you don't want an anr an anr guy who likes all your songs you want the anr guy who when you send your shitty yeah. song they say send another yeah. Yeah. because they're willing to listen through your shitty songs because they'll find it or they believe in you as a writer yeah. and it, you know it's a, somehow i don't know when in your schedule you're listening to music but you manage to at least come back with comments Every time someone sends you songs, and even when yeah. I, you're not, I, you know, I'm not signed to you, and I still send you songs, you still have always responded with, "This isn't right," or "This is cool." What if you did? And you you come, you listen enough to at least respond, and and that's hard to yeah. do for anybody. To me, it's essential because if I don't respond, if I don't give you like some real um, clarity that I'm paying attention, I'm listening, I'm thinking deeply, I'm not just skimming the surface. Um, then you're not, then you're, then I, you're not going to keep sending me the music because it's, yeah. it would be a waste of your time. You yeah. Know? And so I want to make sure that the people I believe are talented know I'm fully engaged. I prioritize. Yeah. I get back right away. I'm really thinking about it. I, that's even, such a people person thing. Yeah, it's well, so interesting. I mean, maybe that's also because it's in a place where you're on your own listening and so you're in your zone and, you yeah. know, it's not, it doesn't have to be a conversation. I mean, I imagine that that's probably something that, that's obviously an advantage if you're focused and in your own world responding to stuff. But that seems yeah. like a... I think it the seems other like thing a social is, interaction. Yeah. You probably uh, socially, when you're to, to, to do it right socially, it's just also an investment of time. It's right. patience. It's a lot of listening. And the other thing, I, I have this, you know, this a, a, a lot of opportunity on behalf of all the people I work with, and I want to take advantage of it. So I probably, you know, the social thing, I probably blow things to things too quickly through to things, you know, to yeah. to deliver for my 
for the people, but maybe not be as present right. as I should. But it's funny, uh, you mentioned you don't want an A&R person who likes everything um, yeah. um, you, you, you do, but uh, everybody has that. It's called their mother. Right. So, yeah, right, know, right. Like, I want to sure. meet the person whose mother hates yeah. everything right. and gives them constructive feedback and then right. they don't need me. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So, so you go from, like, you know, you've, I might be off, but yeah. as a sort of sole producer, I Love College is kind of like the last one where you were primarily focused on being a producer or at yeah. least the balance. I feel like somewhere there was this shift between I'm not going to focus as much time in the studio as a producer and I'm going to get more into the to the business side. Is that Yeah, I mean producing for me is like uh um there's this category of things I have that include um playing golf, uh-huh. video games, being in the certain types of TV shows on okay. uh, heroin and crack yeah. cocaine. Right. Those are like things I never want to try because right. I know they're addicting and right. they're probably, you know, you probably get hooked on one of them. So uh, I would say the closest thing I have to that is making, make actually making tracks by myself just, you know, or with, you know, a musician because right. I'm not a, a great player and just, you know, sampling and chopping and doing drugs and just making records from scratch. And I love to do that. And I guess I, I've given up more and more of that. I think, you know, at the time having kids that probably eat into that time, just as people's, sure. you know, golf game probably goes down right. with their kids. So, but, but I also, um, you know, I think as a, as a, as a DJ oriented producer that, you know, chopping stuff up and losing a lot of that stuff, that, that era has sort of changed a little bit. So now, right. now what I'm doing is, um, producing in probably the way that hasn't you know that that was the a and r producer of the sixties, which is right. you know figuring out people's strengths and talents and putting them together and calling you know pulling someone in i mean I think I have probably in some ways a terrible reputation in some ways a great reputation for you know telling someone at some point like you probably hit the wall on this how about bringing in another producer to finish it and it's right. it's sort of insulting to some people right. and other people love it they like you know um realize they want the final product you know and right. and ultimately a you know, the traditional producer is is somebody who gets something all the way to the finish line. Right. Um, and uh, and sometimes that means recognizing, you know, the the players on the team that it needs, you know, that one position is being unfulfilled and needs to come in. But I um, mean that, and that's is that just a, a title change? Is record exec? Because well, we know A and R guys who don't do this. So, I mean. Do you consider yourself a producer? Because you're on these records as A&R, not necessarily as yeah. a producer, even though you are doing the 1960s form of producing. I mean, is it hard to sort of compartmentalize the, I'm, you know, here yeah. I am, and I'm an A&R guy, I'm, a, I'm the head of this yeah. company, that company, and I'm a producer, and I'm a writer. Yeah. I mean, how do you compartmentalize that, and how do the people you work with compartmentalize you well that's the that's the challenge we all have is to um to try not to try to get ourselves not to to compartmentalize ourselves start not to look at somebody he's a writer he only writes he's not an artist he's not a playwright he's not a you know a podcaster he's you know and and um and we're in a in a in a world where there's you know First of all, we're in an industry where you can't, you probably have to do more than one thing to, you know, survive, but they're also interlinked and complementary. And, and to be a, you know, a manager, you have to be a marketer and you have to be a negotiator and you have, there's so many uh, roles. So I would just say that, um, 
that, you know, I, I think my role is to be a utilitary player. Sometimes yeah. it's to find songs. Sometimes it's to match talent. Sometimes it's to, to find somebody who can get what's needed done. And I try to get people to have an open mind that, you know, sometimes I'm acting as a publisher and sometimes I'm acting as a you know label. And it's, you know, I tried my best to do to to state my intention and um and i think i have like a, a reputation for being direct and honest right. so i think when i say like i'm i'm the reason i'd like to do this is for this and yeah. that is there's no you know ulterior motive other right. than you know what i lay out which is generally to get the just the best product because sure. ultimately i think that's where it benefits everyone and what kills me is those 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 records that like somebody told me you never want an 11 six or two like you, what, you, what do you mean? Well, you know, you want a top ten, a top five, or a number one, right? You know, and so right. what kills me is why would a record end at eleven or six, like, or even you know three? What's you know what stopped it? What was wrong with it? What could have been better? What did we do right, wrong in the promotion, in the rollout, in the recording, in the artist's career that? that the song would get to three, but it wouldn't get to number one. What's an example of that? I actually know of a few under eight, just from oh, having talked to yeah. you guys. Like, I, like, always the biggest surprise to me is the fact that Wild Ones came out during maybe the best year of singles mm. since I've been a professional songwriter. Yeah. You know I mean? That's Call Me Maybe, Gautier, and... Uh, 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 payphone and we are young and all these great songs were coming out at the same time. You know, real classic songs in a way. And here's maybe maybe the most classic Florida song next to my mm. house, of course. But you know, when um, how does uh, why does that song not go number one? Like that's number two. Yeah, I, I have to remember exactly what was number one. Sometimes it's just you know it might have been stuck behind Gautier, and that yeah. was just such a unbelievably perfect record in every way right like i i god I, I flew to melbourne from new york like which is a long trip for a day to try to make that happen and that was what do you mean uh, did you sign him or oh I, I tried to yeah. it was ended up between being us and republic and um anyways long story but that was that was an experience but that song was just on on within you know it was just one of those songs where in 30 seconds you're like, this is the best thing I've heard in years. Right. And then every 30 seconds it gets better and better and better and better. And you're like, there's nothing you could yeah. have done to make it better. It has the, each, the song evolved. It got, it was, it was exciting. It was interesting. The production was perfect. It made you just want to play it over and over and over right. again and never get tired of it. Right. I think that's a lot of people make their, their judgment on a song on first listen, which it's, I think it's almost more important that after 10 listens or 20 listens, you, you, you're so excited to hear it again. But yeah, why Wild Ones? Wild Ones isn't a, isn't a, isn't a, um, a, a good example because uh, I think it, was, it got to number two when there was just traffic at one. Right. Um, it was weird on that album because Good Feeling got to two, Wild Ones got to two, and Whistle was the one that got to one. Yeah, um, that's kind of that's kind of surprising. And that, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't have guessed that. But there was I remember Good uh, Good Girls um, uh, Gone Bad, uh, yeah. Cobra Starship. Sure. I have a theory with that one. Did so, you you wrote on that too, right? Or no? I, I didn't. <coughs> uh, I, I know it's Jay Cash, and I know it's uh, it was Kara and Kara, Gabe, right. and yeah, and uh, um, and uh, Kevin. Uh, um, 
Right. Rudolph. Right. Um, we were putting, that was our very, very first little tiny room we had at Paramount Studios. And we were just, uh, I had, it was my gear from home. I, right. You know, my fiance had moved in. I got Atlantic to pay a couple grand a month to put a room in. I put right. a minimum wage engineer and we just ran round the clock sessions, experiments. And uh, Aaron ran that session that got um, right round that right. it was his idea to do the um, to do the, the interpolation and we got Cobra Starship that year. But I argued that the post chorus repeated. If you listen to the song, they repeat the line Good Girls Gone Bad like sixty times yeah. or something. And I argued that, you know, they repetition is good, but there's a fine line where you just run the math after you've heard the song a hundred times, right. you've actually heard that line six thousand times. Sure. And like, you know, when you see some of the most of radio research is wacky and unpredictable and i disagree with a lot of it but that one was kind of clear the song you know ascended 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 and it hit this point where they measure burnout and it just became yeah. and immediately when it got a top 10 it just burned out and tanked because people were like tired they wanted they were like pulling their hair out after they had heard the song a certain amount of times right. and it was that amount of balance between catchiness and and uh and repetitiveness and it was just it worked on the short end of it being very repetitive so second time you heard it you 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 were able to sing along but are your um competitors slash contemporaries you know thinking of like luke and max and and the people who run their sort you know prescription mxm and you know, probably what's going on in, in in the Benny Stargate world and, and some of these different groups of people, yeah. they all have song math. Do you, is that a, I, I always talk about song math. Is that a universal truth in songwriting or is it, do you have your song math? Is that something I mean, you can teach? Uh, I, I think it's like, if you're listening to that yeah. song, you're saying this was repetitive too much. And then, you know, I hear some of these yeah. songs, including one of mine that's doing well right now. And I'm like, that's a really repetitive chorus. It's, it's kind of like and, you're, it's, and yeah. it's sort of a surprise that it's doing to me. I'm like, yeah. that's that's fantastic. I don't have other songs that I repeat a chorus that much, but I don't know where the burnout rate is. You know, I don't you know, yeah. that's going to be interesting to see. You'll, you'll come to your conclusions and it will affect your how you write the next one. But I think that whole the different theories, so I'm at all stuff. It's like, you know, it's like being an artist. You have like a straight edge ruler, but you're not going to use that in every in every right. painting. You you have these tools and you want to, you know, you're you're creative. You don't want to write the same thing over or use the same blueprint. There yeah. is things that work like, you know, you have a, a film. It's got almost every movie we see has three acts and they have almost right. the same high concept yeah. arc to those to those right. acts you have certain like like laws of psychology i always right. talk about there's uh these rules to advertising actually where right. it's like kids when you're advertising to kids you want food to be fun and toys to be serious yeah. and like you don't want to put like in a for a film you want to put a crazy person in a normal world or a normal person in a crazy world because right. a normal person in a normal world is boring and a crazy right. person in a crazy world is absurd right. so you do have these things but generally you then throw them all out and it's why I'm a big fan of at least a second idea started every day because it's like you maybe in the first idea that's where you're sort of following some structure you feel yeah. some sort of pressure you you want to you know yeah, you we want call to, that a want, Hail Mary. You want to be a productive, that last yeah. o- That last hour, you, you know you have only enough time. Everyone has to leave at this time, so you just yeah. say, okay, we finished this idea. You have one hour. First instincts go, just enjoy it, have fun. And I can't tell you how many songs we have that have been cut in the last amazing, hour. Yeah. So what I try to do, and I don't want to, like, you know, 
give give away too much, but I like you know That's having funny. the studios in the in, <laughs> there you go having the studios in the office. One of the things I do is I give people there. You know, I try to stay out of them for a lot of times. Give people time to like you know not feel pressure, not have someone over their shoulder. Yeah. But I try to dip in and see when they've got that first idea right. to a point where it's an idea and it's down, and then you know um, and then push them to the next idea sure. because you can you know when you say that that last hour it could be that last three hours it could be that last hour could be the third idea when the first idea is like enough where you have it you can save right. it you can revisit it with fresh ears but right. i feel like a lot of sessions um they just run on too long and people just when you've looped the song forever you start oh, yeah. hearing it in a in a, in, a, in a way and we have the technology that allows you to you know Go outside, like in, in our new facility. It's in a like a you know a, a culturally relevant, populous place, not in a back corner like on in Burbank, hidden in some place. And I want people to get out, you know, to go take a walk between songs, to go down the street, come back, go have coffee. Yeah, walk whatever. through doors. Somebody said that to me. Just walk through a door. Yeah, it's amazing how much. Even if you, that's why everyone we know has written a, their best lyric while they're pissing or while they're showering or something. They just, it's a, not an environment yeah. that's, that they have to focus on something else or you're pissing on yeah. a wall, you know? There's this book about creativity that was debunked but it had all these interesting things about, um, you know, hot showers and, and being relaxed and your creative um, ideas, uh, you know, and clearing you out your debunked? mind. Well, the, the guy used some um, quotes that um, he attributed to Bob, to Bob Dylan that were Bob Dylan says he never said, and right. so it was sort of like taken off the shelves because yeah. it was. But but there were a lot of theories about what drugs were like or conducive yeah. to writing hits. You look at these eras of you know yeah, right. soul music versus disco music and the the drugs people were doing and well you know uppers versus downers all that stuff. But being in the shower, um, and I noticed you said being in the shower or pissing. I noticed that the real hits like are the ones that just pop into your head while you're doing one of those things. Yeah. You clear your mind. You're not sure. thinking, and this earworm comes yeah. back. You're like, wow, that was a really sticky earworm. Yeah. If I'm not thinking of anything, yeah. and it's the you know, or the first thing when you wake up in the morning, you just came out of sleep, you wake up, and all of a sudden, you're like you know, this little melody is stuck in your head. Yeah. You're like, wow, is that you know that that thing I survived the night's sleep? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One thing that's crazy about you that there's, you know, there's probably one of the things that's crazy about you. I could just go, I'm like, there's like this long list I have. Um, but um, half the people that we've interviewed haven't, are not good singers. Mm. You know, and, and that you must hear these ideas and then for you to get them out yeah. is a very peculiar, like, uh, 
prospect because yeah. you know it's one of those things that you you'll you'll come into a room and say no it needs to be like and you try to sing it but you hear it but you're you yeah. try to translate it is that how how do you deal it's, with that it's, it's hard because i can't sing people all make fun of me because i do try because what am i gonna yeah, do exactly. not, not get the message out or sure, right. worse i like right. don't i don't do my best to articulate it and then someone i'm very sensitive to people's time so i don't want them wasting time their own yeah. time without enough information so i actually try to um you know, if I can't, I, I can hear the note. So if I'm singing it too low or trying not to, I'll like actually point my finger a little higher. To yeah, say, yeah, yeah. That's where I'm trying to get. Yeah. But um, I can get the cadence down. And then I try to, right. you know, they say, um, you know, people can, it's, it's so dangerous to use words to describe music. Because right. if I'm talking about something that's really hard and heavy and has like an aggressive track, like yeah. you could be thinking, you know, a Skrillex song and someone else could be thinking a Metallica right. song, right. you know, like you actually have to play the music. And I, you know, yeah. that's where DJing comes in so handy. Right. And you could say like, you know, I'm looking for this sort of run or this sort of, you know, uh, um, oscillation or whatever. Listen to this, you know, song from 72 where it does it. Now you got to actually be careful about that because there's, you know, yeah. there's whole lawsuits that can happen just from a reference or so. Um, does that scare you? I mean, obviously it scares the shit yeah, out of me. I, you know what? It scares me on behalf of songwriters. So here's the truth of what happens, right? You write this song, you have, you know, minding your business, you're trying to come from the soul and happens to have some sort of, you know, similarity to something or some, you know, person who knows nothing about music comes to some conclusion and um, you get sued because it's a hit. They they may be suing because they know it's not that similar, but they think that they're going to, you know, you're going to pay them to go away because the truth is your money is frozen. Right. Like, you know, and as a songwriter I mean, who's... E&O insurance is like... I don't know. If you know, I don't know. Keep yeah. going. Sorry. Well, it's just gonna, it's like, it's almost like becomes um, blackmail, you know? Right. You have, a, you know, half a million coming to you. You have your, you know, you've been scraping nickels together to be, because, you know, it takes so long for income to come as a songwriter. And then you finally have this money coming and someone comes out of woodwork saying it sounds like XYZ. Yeah. They know it doesn't, but they know that if you, you, you gonna, you know, to get your million dollars, they have to go away. Yeah. And they can have, they can just be a needle in your side and hold up that money for years. So you know you're gonna peel off something to 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 pay, which is just just so gross. you know it's it's gross. It's it's just so unethical and so gross. And what choice do you have? Is and there a way to eliminate that, or is that just sort of that's just? Life. I think there has to be. I mean, I think there has to be a fear that um, bringing these frivolous completely frivolous things not doing the diligence not having you know legitimate uh, legitimate claims needs to have a cause you need to dissuade people from having something that's that's that has that they haven't done i mean i've talked to people with claims and sometimes i've said like how much you know how many third parties i mean how many people have you gone to for counsel on this or is this strictly your own opinion right. and they say it's my opinion my my lawyer agreed right. Your lawyer, who knows, can't play an instrument, knows nothing right. about music, and uh, and I'm like, you're gonna, you're gonna like 
affect somebody's family and their life for something that you haven't even done your own diligence on. And they have a lawyer who's working on contingency who thinks he's just going to get paid to go away. And it's uh, it's there's no repercussion because they're they're if their lawyer is doing it on contingency, they're not out anything if they lose. They need to be there needs to be uh, some some sort of damages for. Is that something need that to has be, to go through politics, or is that something I, that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I'd have to get like a, a, a there have to be a lawyer, but there should be the interest on the money that they're holding up or some something. There has to be something to it. There has to be some cost to it. I mean, yeah. there's a cost if people are paying legal fees sure, for of that, course. but. But what lawyer is going to tell you, don't hire me to do this? You right, know? of course. Are there people in the industry, there, there are a couple things that you actually yeah. mentioned that I had written down before. One was, you really enjoy the art of business. Mm. You really like the negotiating. Mm. I don't know, um, I happen to really like the business side. I like dealing with it. I like hearing about it. I like understanding this issue that we're talking about now with insurance or or the idea of frivolous lawsuits. But a lot of people who are creative and if you're as a, as a producer, there we know a lot of producers who can barely get out of bed and show up to the studio, let alone study, read books about how the how the psychology sure. of business. Where does the desire to be a a good negotiator come from and have I is that that seems like a correct analysis of you am I wrong well I, I would say um, most uh, I enjoy being creative and the, the thing I learned early in the in music business is that you can be pretty creative on the deal making side I mean you can really be creative in any type of business but sure. um, I think the first publishing deal I did was with um, first or second was with a writer who had been a successful artist in his past he wasn't a successful artist at the time and um you know, I made him an offer and he said, well, considering, um, you know, my successful artist career, um, I think, you know, it, sh- it should be more, this, you know, offer should be more substantial. And I said, well, you know, I'm, we're only talking about working on third party records, not on your own artist right. records. And he said, um, and I said, you know what, maybe I could offer you a publishing deal that excludes your own artist records, but I didn't sure. know that existed at the time. And then, I, then as I sort of investigated, I found out, you know, you, you can, can do, do anything. a deal. You can do yeah. anything. You can do a deal that's only a song right. somebody writes on Tuesdays, you know? Right. Um, it really could be, you know, and then sure. so all of a sudden, the, the unlimited... Hard to keep track of that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, unlimited potential for, for what's out there and how things are structured. And I think it's important um, to find a recipe for success for someone for honestly planning out. I mean, I know I, I always go up against the fact that I know what other people's pitches are to new artists, and I know I cannot pitch a bold-faced lie. And I'm not saying that you know other people do that even intentionally. But you meet with an artist in in November, a new artist you're interested, and the um, they want to hear that their album's going to be out in the spring and they're going to be on yeah, tour right. in the summer. Yeah, right. That's what they want to hear. They're looking for someone to tell them that. Yeah. Um, somebody could tell them that. Is it possible, you know, it's possible to win the lottery, no, it's, it's possible to yeah. do, you know, a lot of right. things. Your odds are Yeah, you can release you. it in a vacuum, but no one's yeah. going to, right. Yeah, I've done, exactly. I did a, a study of all my artists from zero to gold of all the acts I've signed, and I've had 19 that have gone gold or platinum, and the average is two, 2.8 years. 
to, for, to reach that point. Um, and did you do that math or did you actually hire someone to No, I did the math. It? I looked at how when I signed them, when their first album went gold. Sometimes it wasn't their first album, sometimes it was the second. And then I averaged it out um, across a bunch of acts. I think I, I think I only averaged out that from the acts that were successful sure. that got there, not including the ones because then there would be infinity. Right, and then, right. <laughs> you know, but um, so, you know, you, and, and not saying that they couldn't make a living or had success in less than that, that time period. Some of right. them. Well, there's but, an industry between zero and gold. Yeah, it's just exactly. not the same industry that you're that you're focusing on. It's not what people have in mind when they're signing right. a record deal. Of course. You know? So um, and so you realistically, you know, it, it is going to be a time period. I actually have this whole theory about artists. So many artists were dropped by major labels and signed again. Like we're yeah. successful. Oh, yeah. Alicia Bruno. Keys, 50 Cent. Yeah, right. We have, I mean, just yeah. Atlantic, Bruno, Fun, Ed Sheeran, CeeLo, T.I., all these artists we've had success with, Charlie Puth, yeah. they were all signed and dropped. And I think the number one reason is a lot of these mega artists were so immensely talented that people recognized it very early in their career. But when they sign but them, they the artist, the, the manager, the A&R, right. the label all have this internal clock of two years. Right. And they all think that something needs to happen in two years or everyone starts to feel like something is wrong in the formula. Sure. And maybe some of those acts, the real timeline from being signed from raw talent and not actually figured out your sound, your performance, your 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 um, collaborators, your essential things. Sure. Maybe that time period's actually four years. And so people are really on this window where they get signed 18 months well, in, two years, they get dropped, and they and they the second deal on about the year, two years, that's that four-year window. Part of it is because they've run out of money. Either the label spent True. too much money or the la- or the artist doesn't have enough money, and you as a label are yeah. saying, I already paid you. So, that's so a, you're sitting there, and two years yeah. into it, you're like, either I have to find a way to continue to put money into this. Exactly. So then you face the conundrum where you are then realize you're in this marathon and you may need this money to last for four years and the way you're doling it out right. seems stingy. But when you know you're in what's right. best for the artist and what's best for the company because you need to make it work for right. that period of time, it's, sure. it's tricky. Well, this w- it, all right, so one of the things that bothers me as a writer is mm-hmm. that songs that haven't been released, they have this infinite lifespan until they get cut. Sure. But in this generation... Um, once a song is released, unless it's sampled, it's rarely cut again. Yeah. And you go back 30 years and, or, you know, 50 years, going back to Bob Dylan, you have some of these songs that are cut by 50 different artists. And, and that will change. And it'll just take somebody to change it. Somebody will have success with a cover. Somebody will have success, you know, you'll get hot as a writer. All of a sudden, your unreleased songs that people were ignoring, they all like them now. But it's not you know, the unreleased like, songs. It's the songs It's the songs that basically got dropped. It's yes. the fact that, I, you know, I have, you know, uh, if I have a song that, there are songs that you've liked of mine that a, an artist has uh, released. The, the one that I wanted that Rickson cut and put yeah, on that Yeah, appreciate thing. it. Appreciate it. It's Amazing a great example song. of that. That song is, is a... Is, a great song that that sold very few yeah. records, and the song's still great. Well, here's something that we do on the record side and the publishing side that's an industry problem, right? I think Appreciated uh, is an amazing song. You know, we on the version we worked on, we tried a bunch of different sure. productions. That code hasn't been exactly cracked. Right. So the song is, is a 
incredible song, massive song, still hasn't been produced. So not only does it need to be covered, but it needs to be covered um, with a new arrangement or production. And so you need someone who not only understands that everything comes in cycles and there's this great wealth of songs that have been done, but also can hear them and reimagine them. And then here's the trickiest part, right? You then have to get producers that are willing to produce that don't participate in the in the publishing, which we have to shift. The government has to shift. There has to be a even balance between publishing income and record income, um, or you know performance from master income that levels it. That then encourages producers to work on records again, and and because that's where the covers are going to come from. And same thing on the other side, though. It's I mean I still think of the fact that. The fact that writers don't have control of the masters at all is really it's, it works from the Grammy is down. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I always say that every year that the Grammys come out. You know, I put it on social media that every year that the Grammys don't include songwriters in album of the year categories mm-hmm. is a the year they don't understand how albums are made, mm-hmm. and this is the wrong era for that kind of thing. And that philosophy of these songwriters have these songs being you can have a song cut by all these different artists, which is where that really comes from, is just fictitious now. It's just not really how it works, and we don't own any percentage of the we only make money if the song makes money and without any sort of album cuts out there we don't we don't get anything we we just don't make any money there's no mo- there's no middle class for songwriters there's if you write hits yeah. you're stoked and underneath that you're kind of screwed because these songs have just limited value and a producer can demand $40,000 for a track yeah. It is tricky. I mean, you know, it's it's the same. It's well, it's not the same in television, but it's becoming that way in a film. It's a zero sum game a lot of the time. There's a lot of people what do you mean? who are. How how is it the same? Meaning that you know that most films are either hugely successful or they or they lose a lot of money, and no right. one, anyone on a participation right. basis is not seeing a dollar from it. You know. Yeah, but the key so. grip still gets paid something. So sure. even if, yeah. you know, the fact that I go into a session and there's no that if the if the song gets cut and if there's a, a an exclusive use of that song for for its initial release, yeah. then there should be money that's trickled down to the writers of it and not specifically just to the producer. The producer is also a writer in most cases, so they can participate in that as well. But there should be something that reflects the work that the writers put in. That for every cut, besides nine, yeah, a split of nine point one cents per song. It, 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 it's definitely tricky. There's, it's will be very hard to get to a um, to a perfect scenario. But sure. yeah, there's also the producer fees. What a producer's role is. What a uh, songwriter's role. Sometimes the, the the producers are using the songwriters to produce vocals yeah. to, you know, that they're more involved in the production than just a writer credit would yeah. would um, would lead you to believe. I mean, especially um, when it comes to writing to tracks, which is sort of a dying art in a way. As mm. as Savin said to me once, he's like, it's it's like writing a, a screenplay to special effects. See, yeah. I would I would sort of disagree with that in the sense that um, 
that it's, you know, it depends like on the, the sound and style and where the innovation and how the, the ability to execute is a production and, um, and the groove and the feel at the time, because like there's the one rule I know is that there's no rules. You know, right. and sometimes the inspiration is going to come from sitting at a piano and sometimes that is going to continue to lead to a lot of, you know, middle of the road, mid tempo. Yeah, right, right, and there's right. just something in the brain that like is, you know, is you're right. just not going to write a drum and bass song on a guitar. And it's right. like it's it's or some new genre that doesn't even exist as of now. Right. You know, so I would just say like there's, you know, the, you got to remember uh, it's the uh, the uh, Brian Eno. Um, um, uh, what is it called? Um, uh, oblique strategies. You know, sometimes the greatest things just come from doing things differently. Right. You know, whatever your routine is, I say that to writers all the time. Like, whatever is the, your biggest struggle, you know, the thing you try to avoid, you don't want to do, is probably what you need to do the most. It's like, it's like, it's what's going to round you out. I try really hard on on varying rhythms. It's one of the things I've learned a lot in the last couple of years is really getting better and better at how I use rhythm mm. as a writer. It's like it's always been to me that that was that's always been my Achilles heel. Mm. Been a really good melody writer, a good lyric writer, but rhythms are always something that's like an interesting thing. Understanding counter rhythms, understanding syncopation better, and getting into that has really been sort of a useful tool as a writer. Yeah. But do you have a favorite kind of producer if it, or, or, you know, a favorite kind of writer? I mean, you have so many under your uh, My favorite kind of umbrella. writer is the... Well, the one who writes hits. The, the one who, <laughs> my favorite kind of writer is the one that um, is, has the highest bar, you know, and, oh, yeah. and figures out a way to get there. You know, Ed Sheeran and Bruno and Charlie and just guys who are like, they, um, they're open-minded but confident and they... Um, don't get high on their own supply. They realize that yeah. the, the you know what what great is is not and, and realize it's not going to come easy. I mean, I remember seeing a lot of writers that I thought were just m- sort of mythological beings that just you know uh, um, coughed out smashes. And everyone that I got a closer look on worked their ass off. Yeah. And when you finally got into it, it did not come easy. It took yeah. it took work. You know. Would you have built any of this differently now that you see how successful APG is? I mean, obviously, I know that we didn't even get into the A&R for Warner Records, which is a massive role. You know, would, yeah. would you have done any of it differently or is it sort Here, of... Yeah, here's the greatest, the, 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 the hardest lesson that took the longest that I'll, I'll share and everyone will ignore, uh, <laughs> which is that, and this is so, it's so hard, even you can, you can learn it, you can agree to it, and then putting it into practice is almost impossible that people evolve and that you know just like we were saying how you got to not you know label somebody and and classify them it's that you have to continue to be have an open mind and revisit them because where someone is at 17 and at 18 and at 20 and at 22 and where they are before they've um you know before Lucas has matched with yeah. Spielberg or like, you know, yeah. I mean, but Bernie Toppin found Elton John or, you know, Bruno Mars found Phil Lawrence, Peter Hernandez found Phil Lawrence, right. however you want to say that, like the, the yin and the yang and the chemistry, yeah. like it, everything changes. Ma- Ryan Lewis and Macklemore, listen to, you know, that, that before. Well, yeah, yeah Macklemore stuff is out there separate. So it just, uh, 
It just is something else. And you have to like, it's so easy to say, I heard that guy, I saw him in the studio, like he does this and that's what he is. Right. And here's my, here's my, you know, description on him. And that's it. A year from now, you have to listen to him and say, he could be totally different, yeah. especially in these formative years of people's careers. So it's like to see every artist once isn't enough. Every yeah, we year, say that. you have to, we, oh my God, that. it's so hard. It's like you, you, you know, people are as successful as the day you meet them. That you see someone who's homeless, and you don't realize that they were rich one. They could have been rich one day, or somebody yeah. who's rich might have been homeless, or just the idea of anybody. I mean, it's so easy to look at at them and view them as. I met you being a very successful, you know, record exec. You had this building already, you know. But the idea that there was a time where you were probably sending out songs that weren't very good, you know. <laughs> No. Is is like it was a long time ago. So it's yeah, it's people who met you then. That's what's cool about the you know the will yeah, I am I, thing. I'm still I'm know? still dealing with that. There's I mean I started it's it's in the business of 16. I was at Atlantic at 17, or sorry 15. I was at Atlantic 17, A and R at 19, and I made so many mistakes in the first 10 years. Right. There's definitely people who still hold those against me okay. and like assume I'm just a you know still the way I, you know, the, the things and half of it was, I didn't, you know, I didn't know I did, right. I did things the best way I knew how right. to get them done at the, at the time and things, you know, things happen in your life. You have to reevaluate and, and have an sure. open mind. That's it. It's a constant exactly. open mind all the time. Yeah. Well, um, two things. One is you have to put that top 40 that you guys used to always keep above the urinal. I know. Oh, that's a good point. Because that was something yeah. that when I first started coming here, yeah. I used to look at that list, and it and it used to really inspire me because everybody who pisses in this place <laughs> would have the top forty right in front of their face, and you'd yeah. see in italics all the ones that that Atlantic, APG, yeah, yeah. probably now Warner would have, and you'd look at that list and you'd think, man, I want to get on that list, yeah. you know? Like you have to bring that up, especially because I have a bunch on there now. <laughs> so like, but but you know, it's like I went in it and I was pissing. I'm reading some shitty sign, and I'm like, come on, man, that top forty has to be there. Okay. That shit inspired me. Yeah. yeah, I love that. I need. I mean, that's that's one of my main focuses now. As you know, moving into the larger role and, and yeah. managing a larger group is how to to continue inspiration. One of the things we've been doing for our writers is every month we have each A and R person and actually every employee of the publishing company pick a song or two that inspired them over the last month. What about it is yeah. special? And we send it to all our writers. And you know, one we can't. We assume like our writers hear the same things we hear, but right. that a lot of times that doesn't happen. Right. And second, it allows it helps for the writers to get to know the employees and what their taste and tone is. Yeah. And somebody, oh, somebody likes this. I'm going to send them that idea, or I'm going right. to ask them how I can get involved in this style of music or whatever. Right. It is. So and I'm, I'm trying to do that. We tried the poster series. Uh, that right. was, you know, we have a couple of them. The next one, I want to be all about uh, uh, inspiration. So yeah, that edu- educating is. I mean, that's one of the things that I've always admired about you, and I think it's been good for all the writers that you've come across. Is that it's about education. I mean, you really come in here and you talk about there are times when you say, you know, those kinds of post-choruses are gone. And because you're listening to music more than anybody that's coming out because yeah. people send you so many songs, uh, that you're listening to a lot of these things say, this this trend has moved on, this trend is moving forward. And whether you're right or not, it's constantly about evolving, like you were saying. And yeah. that evolution has really affected 
a lot of writers in this industry. I have a list of titles that I share with my writers yeah, now right. to avoid. And they say, why should I avoid this? I was like, well, these are the titles that I'm getting eight songs a week of with yeah. the same title. Sure. And no artist is taking it. Right. And even it, though the title could work, of course, there's no rules. It could work. But just there's, but there's so many songs being like, written with the same title that you're more likely to have a song. And then your competitor comes out with the same title because sure. there's hundreds of songs being written. I, I can't yeah. imagine how many Netflix and chills or whatever. Yeah, and then there's you know, titles like that, that never, you know? ever, ever work. Although I'll challenge someone to write a hit song called boomerang but somehow i get a song called boomerang every week yeah every week is a song called boomerang yeah well there's a gimmick the gimmick um song right now is really difficult i think it's easy for people to still look back and say i want my umbrella and they try to come up with a multi-syllabic word that everyone understands and they just go and they try to write that and that's just not really where concepts come from a compelling concept about a boomerang you know is is a very is a very difficult thing. It just becomes an, a club record that nobody's listening to. Nobody's listening to that song. But when people, a lot of writers, they that's I really find funny. Young writers, they, is, huh? yeah, because I know some of your writers who have that song already, and have maybe even release that song. I'm sure <laughs> they've like, all tried it. So yeah, they, I think right. you, you, you get exactly. I, you gotta get it out of your system at some right. point. But yeah, there's there's those those ones. But the multisyllabic, I think people. You know, they, they, they understand that that works and it's cashy and they don't really know why. Sure. And then when Appreciate they... Appreciate it. I yeah. try to explain that with art, with writers too. It's like, if you want... It's okay to be... It's not okay to be wordy, but it's okay to use a lot of notes. You, If you have multisyllabic words stringing together, it can be a very simplistic phrase and it can cover a lot of real estate. The more you have these multisyllabic words, the more you can take up space without it being wordy. So if you have yeah, the wordier your song, the or, or the uh, the more rhythmic your song, the bigger the words in a way have to be in order to offset that. Well, another way, another reason why it works so well is because it's if you're trying to get someone to sing along, they logically can sing along the first time they hear it. So right. if I say "Kala." You're gonna rip, you're gonna right. finish fornia with it right. the same way. If I say one two three, you're gonna right. say four. Same way if you say a b, you're gonna say c. Right. And those things, those spelling, yeah. left right left, or you know, hot or cold, black. You're gonna. It's just the brain works. So if you if 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 your goal is to surprise them and to outwit them and to challenge someone's thoughts you're going to go yeah. against that and if your challenge is to corral everyone on first listen you're going to you, you know use the way if you if it's a bunch of one syllable words they're going to have to hear the song several times right. to, to, to i'm they smiling still might because be this is this is what it's like to first meet you and you have explained a lot of these rules so many times, and it still works. Those rules are rules for a reason on some level. I try You've to done use, your research. not use the word rules. No, okay. They're tools. You, they're they're tools for a reason, but but you understand the pitfalls yeah. of them and, you know, yeah. and, and how to use that to your advantage as a writer. But it, it's one of those things that you don't – there aren't a lot of A&R people who are that involved in the art of song craft. And so much and fun. I, I just enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh This is fun. For this. Always, always good I appreciate to talk. it.
Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to Jeff Sparger, David Silberstein from Mega House Music, and Michael White. Here's a sneak peek of next week's And The Writer Is. He was like, he couldn't believe that these two skinny Norwegians yeah. made this this music. So, um, so the, it, it was just like a chemistry that was instant. Yeah. And again, it doesn't matter where you come from in music, as long as you share the same passion and references and love right. for music. And, and, and he quickly understood that, oh, these guys know what they're doing. And vice versa, we, we just... We're just breathtaking by his talent and his voice and his writing. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 